Episode 192, everybody, with attorney and de-escalation specialist, a man who has served thousands of people, including some of our nation's most hardcore criminals, in de-escalation tactics and techniques, helping people change their lives, turning their lives around. I had the honor of bringing on this next guest. Please welcome the one and only Doug Knoll. The Optimal Life. Doug Knoll ESQ. Welcome to the show, my friend. Thanks, Nate. I understand you're a lawyer too. Yeah, I was going to say we have something in common. We are uh, we are both attorneys. Well, I did that for about 22 years, and I finally got fed up with it. Yeah, the thing is, is that I never did it. I just have the shiny plaque on my desk. I've never practiced a oh. day in my life. So, <laughs> okay, good for you. You did. You were even smarter than I was. Right. Right. So. This is fascinating stuff because of the times that we're in when it comes to, especially with the hysteria with police, that's really what caught my attention when I, I see your area expertise um, helping people resolve conflict and, and de-escalating, more importantly, de-escalation. So talk to us a little bit about uh, what's going on in, in, in today's society. Why do we why do we see so many encounters? Let's start with the police and the public. Why are we seeing so many encounters of police having trouble de-escalating situations? Police are taught safety first, and they are taught that violence is the fastest way to safety. So if they are encountering a, a situation that they, where they feel even the slightest bit threatened, they're trained to use as maximum force possible immediately without conscious thought. That's their mentality and that's their training. And in some ways that makes sense, you know, because they're, police are asked to go into some pretty difficult situations. But I would say that 90% of the situations the police are called to respond to don't, don't require that level of response. And unfortunately, uh, they, the, the, the training mentality is you know, one size fits all. What's really interesting is in the post standards, police officer uh, standards of training, which are applicable in every state in the United States. One of the one of the primary pillars of post training is learning how to listen and de-escalate and communicate. And yet, when I talk to peace officers in all different kinds of agencies, whether it be local police or sheriffs or state police or customs and enforcement, you know, immigration enforcement, wherever they are, they all tell me that the the training they get on listing and de-escalation is next to worthless. Um, it's a it's a kind of check off the box kind of thing, and everybody just sort of poo-poos it as being ridiculous and ineffective. And even with all of the problems that we've had in the last couple of years, where where with the advent of body cameras as well as cell phone cameras, mobile cameras, that we see a lot more police misconduct than than we've seen before, even though the conduct has probably existed for a long time. Police to police agencies are still unwilling to invest the money necessary to train their, their cadre of officers how to have a nuanced approach to the situations they face. They still think it's better and faster and more efficient to apply maximum force uh, in, in the, wherever there's the slightest threat and you know, I, I, I'm sure the calculation is that you know, the lawsuits that follow ultimately uh, cost, but they're, it's less costly than the alternative. That's and astonishing. I'm sure that's the calculation that goes on in city managers' offices and risk management officers when they're thinking about how do we deal with this? Because 
because obviously excessive use of force costs a lot of money. But you look at it over the long haul, and the insurers and the and the the uh, self insurance agencies that typically counties and municipal governments subscribe to, they're there to save money. And so there's there's an equation that's going on here that nobody talks about that I'm sure is informing a lot of this, a lot of the decisions around training. Mm. It always comes down to money, unfortunately, with every single thing in life, yep. right? It's just you can't get away from it. But but it's astonishing to me, Doug, that these police forces and unions, et cetera, don't spend more time on, to me, what is probably the most important thing, emotional intelligence and the ability to, um, the ability to de-escalate. It's just it's incredible to me. It is kind of mind-boggling, but but when you think about it, the police, the police people, police professionals, do not see themselves as social workers or as peacemakers. They see it's an us versus them mentality, and they see themselves as being the the blue line against violent gangs and drug dealers and child abusers, you know, and child sex abusers, and all. They they look at the worst part of society and say. The only thing that between us and chaos, the only thing between the public and chaos is us. And these people are all violent people, so we have to respond violently. But so they're the not idea all. of being emotionally intelligent, of you know, learning how to listen, how to de-escalate people in the way that I teach, is just foreign to them. Wow, but the, the, the that and that's what the issue. They're not all violent people. Some of them are just, no. they're in the wrong place at the wrong time, they've had a bad day, they've got bad circumstances, and now they're having an encounter with a, an official that has at least perceived authority over them, and sometimes it causes anxiety and it causes them to lash out in ways that they probably typically wouldn't in a normal situation and now instead of a de-escalation and maybe an officer that's able to talk the guy down and slow him down and say hey we're not here to we're here to just see what's going on we're not here to antagonize you it turns into a, a pissing match that so often right. leads, so often leads to violence it's it's scary and you see you, what's really interesting is you see this more in suburban agencies than you see it in inner city agencies and mm. and you know i mean the likelihood of there being anything's particularly violent or serious in a, in, say, in a normal middle-class, upper-class suburban environment is slim next to zero. Those are the officers, of course, who get the least amount of training because their agencies have the least amount of money. And they're the ones who are most likely to respond with maximum force. I mean, I remember a story, I think it was earlier this spring, where there was a, uh, a guy, I think he was in Virginia, maybe it was Florida, uh, naval officer, or a reserve officer, I think he was a Marine or something, and a training officer, a black guy, in his SUV, just driving home, and he got rousted by the cops just because he was black. And and they got it all on cam, and it was just ridiculous what those cops were doing. And this is some tiny little podunk suburban community in Florida, and, mm. you know, yeah. clearly racist. Well, and yet, it's it terrible. persists today. I mean, it, it, and, you know, with the conclusions that you have to draw from this is, the agencies just don't care. Right. right. They really don't care. I, I think police reform in that regard is so critical and, and much needed. I know there's been talk about it, and I, I hope they come up with something as, as we continue forward into the next years because um, it's so critical, it's so crucial. But let me... so. Again, you, you don't. We started with police. You don't focus just only on police. You focus on de-escalation and helping people resolve conflict in any and all situations. Correct. Correct. 
I mean, and I've worked in some pretty dark places. <laughs> when you say dark. As well as some pretty enlightened places. So when, it's a pretty interesting range that I find myself uh, in what, at times. What are the dark places you've worked in? I've worked in uh, maximum security prisons in California. Uh, the darkest place is probably Corcoran State Prison in the level four uh, unit where Charles Manson was housed and, you know, the worst the worst of the worst. And I worked there for two and a half years until the pandemic, training men coming out of gangs, coming out of gang violence. They're leaving the gangs, training them how to be peacemakers and mediators. And, uh, you know, you go around the room and ask them, say, what was your, what was the, your, what were the primary emotions in your family? And they would say, the only, ang- the only emotion in my family was anger and rage. And as a child, I was beaten until I could barely move. Hmm. <laughs> and well, that explains why you're in prison. You know, that was the model you had—violence. Um, but what's really remarkable is, in having worked with my colleague Laurel Coffer, having started Prison of Peace back in 2010, and today we're international in scope. We, it's pretty amazing to see how it's grown. What we have learned is that you can take people who have had. Some, some of the worst lives imaginable, and they've done some pretty heinous stuff, both men and women. And when they're given the right skills and the right support, they completely change as human beings. And in fact, uh, of the two or 3,000, we've had two or 3,000 of our students released uh, on parole, and we have zero rep- reports of recidivism. None of our students have ever reoffended when they've been released. Wow. And that's a testimony to them. And I know, it's powerful, and it's a testimony to them, and it's a testimony to the idea that when you teach people the right skills, the right life skills on how to get how to get along, how to resolve conflict, the violence is not the answer to problems that they do fine. And the problem is that they just were never taught. They, they grew up in horrible families and horrible environments, and they never knew they had a choice other than violence. They never knew that there were skills out there other other than pulling a gun and shooting somebody or pulling a knife and stabbing somebody. That's all they knew. That was their conflict resolution training. Mm. So, and, when, and when you give them the right skills, and they realize, hey, I've got a choice, they're going to go for the, they're going to go for peace every single time. So based on no what matter you, how violent the background is, right? So based on what you're saying is that while there obviously is a nature and uh, element to every single human being, we're born with different traits, characteristics, thoughts, feelings, etc. But what you're saying is that most people, a majority of people. Even the ones that have committed heinous crimes, if you give them the right tools and right upbringing, the right nurture, they are going to 99% of the time go to the positive side. That's right. As I tell people, we don't, babies, murderers are not bred, murderers are not born. Babies are not born as murderers. They aren't. They're bred, as, they're bred to be murderers. I mean, there's a very, very small percentage of people that have have dysfunctional brains, but I mean that's like one hundredth of one percent mm. of the of the prison population. The rest of the people, they were they were bred to be criminals. They were bred to be murderers. What are and, some of the th- and most of them can be retrained to to not to, to move in a completely different direction. It's it, the brain is the brain is so plastic. It's incredible. It all it's all about the the brain and, and reprogramming that brain. So what are some of the That's things right. that you and your partner what are the, when you're in that maximum security prison and you're sitting amongst across from some of the most 
some some of the most hardcore criminals what are some of the things then with your program and your skills that you're doing to help them get back on track well the first thing we do is especially in our orientation before we start teaching is we make it very clear to our potential students that that prison of peace is all about moving from uh, serving a life sentence to living a life of service and we tell them that this is an opportunity for them to learn how to serve others by being peacemakers and mediators and stopping prison violence in their community and so the inmates that are drawn there are a lot of inmates who get are attracted by that idea so they, they come into our class and then we start on a year-long journey of training them in about 30, 30 different basic skills uh, that they're going to need as mediators and peacemakers until we finally culminate it in a mediation workshop where we train them actually in a mediation process. And the very first thing we teach them how to do is how to listen to emotions. Listening other people, it's what I call listening other people into existence. And, and we teach them this because when you learn how to listen to another person's emotions and reflect back those emotions with a simple use statement, <coughs> you are not only calming down that angry person, you're also reprogramming your own brain to become emotionally intelligent. And it takes about, it ta our, typical, our typical inmate student takes about five weeks before the transformation occurs. And then it's like going, I mean, I'll never forget the first time we saw this. We were working in the Laurel and I were started a program in the largest, most violent women's prison in the world. And we were, our first group of 15 women, were, they were like black thorns until week five. And we came in and all of a sudden we, we didn't see black thorns, we saw beautiful roses. They, were, they had gone through this transformation where they became in touch with their humanity. They were becoming emotionally intelligent and they were laughing and joking and happy and they were normal human beings. The first five weeks, they were shut down, angry, um, pissed off, violent women. <laughs> Week five, completely changed. And we thought that was pretty pretty amazing and, until we started seeing the same effect in every single cohort that we trained, both men and women, right around week five or six. The shift occurs. And it's, a, it's just amazing to witness. Yeah, absolutely it is. So and, and, it, it's, it, and it's kind of, it's difficult to describe. It's one of those things you've got you've to gotta witness for yourself to actually see it, to believe it. Yeah, I mean, and you guys are, you guys are, time. you guys are sitting there going, if we can do this with these people, we can do this with anybody. But so, That's right. So, That's what I say. If I can train a murderer to be a maker, think about what I could do for you. Right. So when you... Um, we're going through that five week. Give an example for us. When you say listen others into existence, get just just what's a general generic example of that? Let me tell you this: the, the very first time that I, I realized that we had something very powerful going on in the prison project. So this was week four, just before the transformation occurred. We walked in to this dingy conference room. Training in prison is not corporate training. <laughs> Let me tell you, right. it's pretty grim pretty rough um, but we walked in and one of our students Sarah was sitting in the corner and she was she was kind of sobbing a little bit and She, we were early and she was early and so we walked over and Laurel kneeled next to her knelt next to her and said what's going on and, and Sarah told us this story she said I'm in prison serving a 25 to life sentence because I killed a family of four as a drunk driver and I had when I was 
that was eight, I've been in prison for 18 years, and I walked, I walked, I w- literally walked away from the accident unscathed and killed uh, young parents and their two children. Um, I had to give up my three-year-old boy to my sister to raise, and every week since I've been in prison, I've written him a letter, and I've never heard from him. He's never written me. He's never called me. He's never visited. Earlier this week, I decided to write a letter and listen him into existence in the way that you have been training us. Think about his emotions. So I thought hard about all the feelings he must have been experiencing in all these 18 years with his mother being in prison. And I wrote to him and, and basically reflected to him what I thought his feelings were. And this morning, I got my first letter back from him. Wow. First time in my life. Wow. And he was very angry, which he had a right to be. But at the end, he said, I love you, Mom. I'm bringing my girlfriend. We'll come visit you in a couple of weeks. And then she started sobbing again. He, he was, he and wasn't responding. What she learned and what he taught her, what we taught her was that her son had a gut need to be validated, to have his emotional experience validated by his mother. And when she did that, his need for estrangement ended immediately. And I have seen this happen over and over and over again, not just in prison, but everywhere, everywhere I teach this. So it's the empathy factor, listening others into existence. It is, it is empathy, but it is a very specific form of empathy called cognitive and affective empathy that is a skill that must be taught, learned, and mastered. It's not something we can innately do. And, and so you have to learn how to do it. And it's based on neuroscience. It's based on brain scanning studies done by Matthew Lieberman at UCLA starting in 2007. I think there are 12, 12 or 15 studies now that are out there that show what happens in the brain when you, when you reflect back emotions to somebody who's upset. And essentially what happens is you as the listener are lending your prefrontal cortex to the person who's upset long enough for their prefrontal cortex to come back online. And when that happens, their executive function returns, they regain impulse control, and the emotional centers of their brain quiet down, they deactivate. They are, they're inhibited automatically. And you can literally calm any angry person in less than 90 seconds. Wow, this is fascinating stuff. This is absolutely incredible. And again, back to where we started, when you, you have all these real-world results, it's shocking that not p- police and so many other companies, people out there, do not employ these de-escalation tactics and trainings. They're not, you're right, and and there's incredulity in your voice, and there's incredulity in my mind, because people are just not interested in this stuff, and part of it is that people think that these kinds of skills are touchy-feely, they're soft skills, they're weak, they're woo-woo, and that's all based on a myth that has been perpetrated on us for over 4,000 years, and that myth is that what makes us, us humans, different than other animals is our rationality. And that's false. What neuroscience is teaching is that what makes us human are our emotions, and we're 98% emotional and only 2% rational. So all these philosophers and theologians that have been feeding us this, this BS about reasoning are wrong. And our whole educational system is based on the idea of rationality, that students' children are rational beings. They're not rational beings, they're emotional beings. And the professors that teach them are emotional beings, but they all wrap themselves in this myth of rationality 
And as a result, when we start talking about emotions, people become very uncomfortable because they have never been trained how to be emotionally competent. 98% of all families are emotionally dysfunctional. So that means that you come out of a family, there's a 98% chance that you're gonna be emotionally dysfunctional at one level or another. And we can see that just by the way people behave. When you say 98% emotional and only 2% rational, how do you come up with that? those numbers? That's not me. That, that, that is not, that's not me. <laughs> that's Antonio Damasio, who's a, 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 an MD neuroscientist. At UC, now he's at USC, University of Southern California. And he's the one that talks about this. I mean, he, and his somatic marker hypothesis. And then, I mean, you start reading the, the, you start reading the people who are studying this stuff, like uh, Lisa Feldman Barrett at Northeastern University and Matthew Lieberman at UCLA and Damasio and Joe Ledoux and all these, all these pioneering neuroscientists who've taken on the, the, the task of trying to figure out what is what what are emotions and how do they how do they what are they and how why do we have them and how do they inter, how do they affect us and you know it becomes very obvious very quickly that we are emotional beings we are not rational beings. yes we do have the capacity to be to be rational but even economists today talk about the concept of bounded rationality we can only be rational within certain rails outside of those rails were completely emotional and every decision that we make is an emotional decision there's no such thing as a rational decision it's all emotion we use rationality to justify explain uh our decisions later but but every decision at its fundamental core is emotional and that's because inside our brains obviously decision making is a very complex process but at the end of the day, with the neuron, when it, when it comes down to a yes/no binary decision, the brain is going to weigh which which decision is going to give me more pleasure or give me less pain. Those are emotional. Pleasure, pain—that's emotion. And every decision is based on that on that assessment. It's not based on a Spockian concept of you know rational thinking. It's based on will I get ple- more pleasure from this or less pleasure, or will I avoid more pain or get less pain from from which which whichever decision I make. And that decision, by the way, this is another thing that's driving people crazy, especially as lawyers, is that it's happening about eight hundred milliseconds before we're even consciously aware that we've made a decision. And so there's just these huge debate going on now and and lawyers are just law professors especially are railing around the idea. Neuroscientists say there's no such thing as free will. It's all deterministic. And of course that throws out the law. The whole concept of mens rea in the law is now scientifically rendered um, wrong. There's no scientific support for mens rea because we're saying. And so people are just going nuts because if there's no for those who are listening, if you mens rea is a concept in criminal law that says you've got to have criminal intent, right? But that means there's free will, and, and neuroscientists are saying there's no such thing as free will. They're saying there's no such thing as we, it's free an will. illusion. They're, they're saying there's no such thing <laughs> it's as it's an free- illusion. Doug, they're saying there's no such thing as free will because uh, our, our brains are making decisions before our we're conscious. Before we're conscious, our subconscious states are are dictating everything. Yeah, we're making we're making all our decisions subconsciously or preconsciously before long before we're aware of them. Then we become become aware of a decision, or we think we're formulating a decision, but we're all, all we're doing is just lining up evidence to support. Why we're making why why we already made the decision that we made. 
so we can explain it because because another part of our brain is really interested in cause and effect. It's, it's, a, it's a causal operator. So we've got to have the, the brain in order to function probably have to be able to see cause and effect. So we'll come up with it. We'll make a decision and another part of our brain says, okay, so now we've got to come up with an explanation for this because we've got to have cause and effect to create a rational universe. And that's the illusion. Wow, that's and fascinating. You, boy, if you just start looking at the literature, you know, yeah. <laughs> the academic literature, especially <laughs> in, in jurisprudence and the, the intersection of law and neuroscience, I mean, it's a raging debate right now. Yeah. A raging debate. Yeah, the attorneys are going, no, don't get rid of these neuroscientists. They're, they're ruining everything here. Then, uh, exactly. They're yeah. saying, well, how do we do deal with accountability? Well, I mean, part of the problem is, I mean, if you go back to looking at the justification for punishment as a, as, as, justice equaling punishment in criminal law, there's really very little justification for punishing people. Um, there is some justification for taking people who are cannot be helped, who have serious, serious brain dysfunction, and who as a result of that are, are unsafe to be with themselves or to be with other people. There's a pretty strong justification that that very small population needs to be segregated from society as a whole. But there is very little justification for thinking about incarcerating people as a form of punishment. Maybe we should incarcerate them to rehabilitate them. Which is that what might you guys make have sense. done. Yeah, which is what but you have done. nobody wants to do rehabilitation because it's soft on crime. And the only way you get elected as a dog catcher in Clovis, California, is to get the Deputy Sheriff's Association to endorse you as being tough on crime, even though you're just running for dog catcher. Because politicians get elected on fear, they don't get elected on good public public policy. So one of the other so you got me going. one of the other <laughs> yeah I know we can go on this for, for for days on end. But one of the other so one of the areas that again when I mentioned before it's not just police. There are so many other positions and, and companies and places that people should be trained in this form of conflict resolution and, and de escalation. One thing that comes to mind immediately is airline employees because they're dealing with so often frustrated people. So I want to do a I, I want oh, yeah. to do a, I want to do a little role play, Doug. So let just just sure. y- you know, I'm what you're the, you're the airline uh, person that's working behind the counter. I'm the passenger whose flight has been delayed 17 times today to ultimately get canceled at, at midnight. I haven't left the airport in 10 hours. Now you're canceling my flight and I'm at the counter and I'm irate and you're telling me that there's no way to get out until tomorrow morning and I've got something important to be doing in the morning. So let's let you tell me how you would handle okay. this if you were them, all right? Sure. Doug, Doug you piece sure. of you piece of fucking shit. I'm I've been sitting here all fucking day and now you're canceling my flight. I've got to see my kids in the morning, Mr. see Haber, them off to Mr. school. Haber, Mr. Haber, you this are is bullshit. really really angry. You're this is bullshit. You feel completely disrespected. You're super anxious. Yes. You don't feel appreciated. You don't feel appreciated. You don't feel like you've been supported. You feel completely disrespected. And the whole thing is just, and you're really inconvenienced. And the whole thing is just really pissing you off. And you're so angry, you're just, you're hardly beside yourself. And you're anxious because you've got commitments. And you're concerned because you don't know how you're going to make those commitments. So and, how are you going to help me get out of this, Doug? And you're, and you're, you feel betrayed, you feel betrayed and sad and completely abandoned. And you really don't know what to do. No, I don't. I've been here all day. How would yeah, you feel? And, and, and it's very, very frustrating. Yes, it is. I've been here all goddamn day. How would you feel if this was you? You feel, you just feel com- like nobody's even listening to you. 
Nobody's even paying attention to well, you. Well, are you listening you, to me? You've gone through this the horrible experience, and it, 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 it's just frustrating the heck out of you, and you're just sick and tired of it, and you're really frustrated and angry. Yes, I am. Off. So what are we going to do? Okay. Okay. All right, well, what do you need? I need to get on a plane and get get home. All right. Understand. You need your big your big concern now is to get on a train, get on a plane, and get home. And we've got a massive storm that has shut down all flights, all airlines across the United States. It's one of the most massive storms we've ever seen. So air flight for the next twenty four hours or forty eight hours until the storm passes and everybody digs out it is is impossible. What other ways can we get you home other than by a plane? Well, I guess I can get a rental car and drive through the night. You going to pay for okay. it? Okay. Do you need some help with that? Or can you handle it on your own? I don't know where to go. I don't know what to do. I've never done this before. Okay, well, the rental car people are over there. And if you need help from any of us, I can maybe perhaps find somebody to help you walk you over there and introduce you to the rental car people that we know because we work here every day. And hopefully they can help you. And if they can't, come back and we'll find something, we'll figure something else out because I know you need to get home. It may not be as convenient as flying, but, it, but at least we can get you started. Thank you for uh, joining me on that little uh, role play. But so, based on that, what you what you just did, Doug, correct me, and you can talk us through this. It sounds as if you start you started by again going back to the empathy, uh, explaining that you're hearing what the person is saying, you're hearing how he or she feels, and then ultimately trying to offer other solutions. Correct. De-escalate then problem solve. The big mistake that people make is they try to problem solve, thinking that that will de-escalate. And it's absolutely not true. It's the other way around. You've got to de-escalate first, calm people down, and then you can problem solve. So, and the only way you can de-escalate is by reflecting back the emotional experience the person is having in the moment. So, as the customer, the irate customer, you you had all these emotions coming up. You were angry. You were frustrated. You were anxious. You were concerned. You didn't feel listened to. You felt disrespected. You didn't feel supported. You felt abandoned, um, and You've, so you have this whole complex of emotions that were coming up. And what I did was reflect those emotions back to you with a very simple you statement. Lending my prefrontal cortex to your prefrontal cortex so that you could calm down. And when you finally said, yeah, that's exactly how I feel, and I could sense the relaxation, then I could say, okay, so what do you need? He said, I need to get home. And I said, well... I need to get on an airplane. I said, well, the problem, Mr. Haber, is that we've got this massive storm that's shut down every airport in the country. Airplanes are not flying right now. What else, how else can we help you get home? And then we just engage in a negotiation and a problem solving to figure out what to do. Beautiful. And you de-escalate. And that's how, that's how it should be done. You de-escalate people with how long did that whole conversation took less than three minutes or four well, minutes? Yeah, I was going to say, you, de you, you typically know how to de-escalate people in 90 seconds or less. Yeah. That's about what it took. And that's about what it took. Interesting. That's fantastic. One of the things you did mention earlier too, Doug, you mentioned about being in some of the darkest places and you gave us the examples of prison. You also mentioned that you've also de-escalated and taught people in some enlightening places. So share with us some of those. Share with us some of those. I got called in. 
Yeah, let me tell you that. That's a great story. I got called in a couple of years ago before pre-pandemic. I was I had a contract with the Congressional Budget Office in Washington D.C. to train senior analysts how to de-escalate members of Congress and their staff. Because because the CBO, which is nonpartisan, it works for Congress, was getting a huge amount of flack from from the far right members of Congress who were blaming the analysts for being everything everything imaginable. And these people, a lot of these people have double PhDs. I mean, they are some of the smartest people on the planet. And they don't know how to deal. I mean, they're, they're, they're super smart, but they are not emotionally well-trained. So I was called in to train them in the stuff we've been talking about so that when they were confronted by a member of Congress or a staffer who was accusing them of basically raping squirrels in the park, you know, I mean, pretty bad stuff, that rather than get flustered, they knew exactly how to handle that person. They knew exactly what to say, how to say it, when to say it, to calm the person down, just like we did in our little role play, so they could then problem solve. And I went back there twice and did two, two different trainings. What do you mean by amazing. the squirrel? What do you mean by the squirrels thing? Pardon me now? What, 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 do you, what did you mean by the squirrels? Oh, I meant that, the, I mean, these, these senior analysts, super smart people, would have meetings with senior staffers and members of Congress, and they would be accused of heinous crimes, heinous acts. And, I mean, it was just, it was a uh, vituperous insult that these staffers, were, that these analysts were having to take from members of con- Congress who did not agree with them or were wondering why the reports were taking so long and blamed it on incompetency, malfeasance, uh, you know, conspiracy, mm. because, mm. I mean, I, I mean, totally unprofessional. Totally unprofessional. Wow, wow. And so I taught them how to, what do you do when somebody's so angry they're spitting in your face? How do you handle that? And I taught them how to do it, and it worked. And what did they what, what, emails. what did they do exactly? I mean, generally speaking, what was your advice? It's just what I did with you. Same you stand thing. there in your presence, you ignore the words, you read their emotions, read their emotional data fields. Emotions are information just like everything else. And it's data. You can read it. You yeah. learn I taught them how to do that. And then you reflect back their emotions with a simple use statement until they say, Yeah, exactly and they sigh and their shoulders drop and they nod their heads. Now that those are all involuntary relaxation responses that show that they've calmed down. Then you go into problem solving. Got it. Got it. And if as you engage in problem solving, they re-escalate, then you de-escalate them again. You just iterate the process. Right. De-escalate, then problem solve. Regardless of the situation that you're in, the process doesn't right. change. Yep, it doesn't matter. Human brain is a human brain. It works. It works on every human brain on the planet. Mm, doesn't matter the culture, doesn't matter anything else. It's all about how the brain operates. That's why the neuroscience is so important because this is the first time we have finally found a skill based on neuroscience that actually works. None of that active listening crap from the 1960s, which has never worked. And, or nonviolent communication, Marshall Rosenberg's, that doesn't work, never has worked, never will work. This works, why? Because now we have science that shows why it works. If there's any police unions listening to this, or anyone else for that matter, that has to deal with 
conflict resolution, they better take note and see what you're talking about. Because the, the, the facts and speak for themselves. The results speak for themselves. What you've done in the prison system alone speaks for itself. When you have people that you can change in five weeks after a life lifetime of hardcore violence. I'm having lunch with a guy today who's one of my trainers who served 19 years in prison. And he's out now. He's been out for about eight or nine months. And he's he's actually going back to school and getting his, he's got already got, a, he got two master's degrees while he was in, in prison. He's getting another master's degree in peacemaking and conflict studies. He's going to follow on my path. That's incredible. So uh, before we finish it off, Doug, uh, you have a book, Deescalate, uh, and we'll link it in the mm-hmm. show notes. It's been out for several years. It's now in its second printing. What exactly, obviously we kind of have an idea, but talk about the book a little bit if you would. Yeah, the book came about as a result of the prison work. I had many, many, many inmates saying, Would you, they all knew I was an author. Deescalate's my fourth book. And they said, will you please write a book that we can have our families refer to so they can understand what it is that we're learning. Because they're seeing these changes in us and they totally, they're totally confused and don't get it. And we need them, we need a book for them. So ultimately I said, okay, I'll write the book. And so Deescalate is the result. And the first three or four chapters of the book basically explain the science of the work, what the work is, to talk, I talk about emotional invalidation and why it's so horrible. And then the rest of the book kind of follows the arc of life uh, from dating, marriage, raising preteens, dealing with teenagers, dealing with divorce, dealing with business, dealing with corporate, being at work, all the way through to finally how to have a calm conversation with the politically polarized. And the book, the book is all about how you apply, what these skills are, what is the science behind these skills, why it works the way that it does, and then how to apply the skills in various life events. Very powerful. Four languages, yeah, it's in four languages, second printing, it's done well. That is great. I look forward to getting my hands on one of those, and uh, we will link it up in the show notes. Doug Knoll, DougKnoll.com. Check them out, guys. We've linked them in the notes. Hey, uh, this is, I could talk to you for hours on end, and, and I would love to probably do this again sometime because I feel like there's a lot more for us to cover. Um, Absolutely. So Anytime you want, Nate. I really appreciate your time, and we will uh, continue watching you, and uh, thank you for everything you're doing. Okay, Nate. Thanks for the conversation. Great time.